0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back again to Tom Foolery with T and K. It's a pleasure to have you as always. If it's your first time, thank you for joining us. Thank you for wanting to learn, to educate yourself more, to grow. Thank you for your support. If it's not your first time, if you're returning, thank you for sticking with us. Thank you for actually coming back for more with this eccentric group of myself and people that i have i mean that i am thank you this is great and hopefully you'll, you'll continue through this journey with us as i continue to do interviews and upload everything that i have so but yes just i'm gonna make it known right now this is a podcast bringing in a diverse set of people uh, a very big collective if you will we're getting this collective of different perspectives and some of them you may not agree with, some of them you may agree with, and that's okay. That's that's what we're here for. We're here to do this, we're here to have debate, we're here to have arguments as a form of communication, you know, so I for one, whatever is going to be on this podcast are things that I'm probably mostly going to agree with, but you know me, if you don't know me, you will. <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm Thomas, I'm an African American male, I got Lawrence here with me. He's our guest for the night. Uh, his skin tone makes mine look like, uh, well, simply but pretty pathetic. It's like a, uh, you know, if you went to, to Dairy Queen and you got held a dark chocolate bar up to their freaking milk chocolate sundae, and uh, you realize that I'm nothing more than a really poorly made thing of chocolate milk. So, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. So Lawrence, before we start, is there anything that you'd like to make known to the group? Any background information? I mean, stage is yours, buddy.
1: Um, I spent ten years studying to become an engineer, so arguing racism seems pretty easy in comparison.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, now that intros and everything else is out of the way, let's jump right into it. So, Lawrence everything going on today we got riots we got protests we got the killing of George Floyd we got past accusations murders like the very sorrowsome death of uh Breonna Scott or Breonna Scott Breonna Taylor fucking retarded no Breonna Taylor thank you that's how many people have died recently it's a shame it is a genuine shame, and there's, there's more onto that list that I can't even begin to name, but we will get into those. But, everything going on, these protests, riots, the violence, all of it, how does it make you feel? What's going on? What is, what is going on in the mind of Lawrence right now?
1: For me, to see all of it, not just the protests, but the violence, the looting as well, it makes me proud. It's watching people who are not just willing to say something and stand for something but follow through when they don't hear what they want to hear, when the changes that they want to have change happen. Um, I think threatening violence has a purpose just as following through with it. And I think if it gets the people who you want to listen to pay attention, gets their ears open, gets their eyes open, gets the apologies that they need to make out, I'm here for it. I'm all for it.
0: Wow, that that was very well said, Lawrence. And real quick, because I forgot to mention the intro, and I was going to include it earlier, but I guess I really can't right now. Lawrence and I had a very, very good conversation before I just, like, we decided to bring him on and then everything else, and I was actually having a, a debate slash argument with a, with an individual that I know whose view is very opposite of mine, surprisingly. I, I never would have expected it from him, considering how long that I've, I've known him. But I sent some of the videos and some of the things that were said to Lawrence to see, you know, how he felt about it, how he would respond, if he might be able to give me some extra insight, and Lawrence ended up sending me voice memos back, and he just articulated himself so well, and the response was just so fluid, so pure, so genuine, so live, that I didn't want to change it, so I'm going to go ahead and include it, actually, you'll notice a shift, I... I'm going to include it after, after this, before we really, really continue to kick it off live here. But it was just, it was incredible. Don't worry, there are only four of them, about two minutes apiece. So, you know, 12 minutes in total, give or take. Uh, or, sorry, eight minutes in total, give or take. But I don't even have to edit or even tell you the questions, because Lawrence did me a big favor and actually re the question. The so questions... For whenever he was replying, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put them in here. It's gonna be great. You're gonna enjoy it. I love it. I agree with it wholeheartedly. And in the description for this segment of our podcast, I'm gonna include those links in chronological order as they were answered. So that if you really want to gain a deeper understanding, a deeper perspective, and really feel everything that he was saying, or just if maybe you're confused, uh, you can watch those videos, and you can really see where he's responding. And so, but yeah. So, moving forward, continuing on.
1: Black Lives Matter is a movement designed to call out police brutality or abuses of power by police and uniformed officers. That is a specific movement meant for a specific purpose, and because it's meant for that specific purpose, it's not going to fulfill any other role. Um let's say black academics and students dealing with issues of racism when it comes to getting into grad school or having people approve of their research, Black Lives Matter is not going to deal with those issues. Um, people who look Asian or from Asian areas and communities who dealt with racism due to coronavirus, it's not going to deal with those issues because those issues, some of those issues had nothing to do with police or were not publicized to have anything to do with police. And because it didn't, and because that didn't appear to be a systemic issue that had been happening long before, coronavirus is new as of, say, four to, I'm going to say, eight months. Um, two years ago, no one was dealing with that issue publicly that we know of. Um, if I looked at the argument, black life only matters when white cops kill it, that that's unfound that's there's literally nothing proving that that doesn't that's not empirical i i can't argue that i can't say my life matters more or less unless a white person kills it that's that can't be proven and even then the argument was based on two of those it was based on four to six different murders or deaths two of those deaths were by officers um those officers were shot by random assailants The movement's not going to do anything about that. Two of those, as far as I could find, were protesters. Unless it can be proven that who shot them, how they died, what they died from, and specifically tied to who did it, Black Lives Matter is not going to say anything right now, only because it's just going to be attributed to people who died because of things that happened to George Floyd. Protests would not be happening if George Floyd had never been killed, so it's still going to be attached to that initial death. Um, there's, there's no way for me to ignore the context of that. People would not be protesting right now if it wasn't for it. And those people who died during those protests would have never died. Um, I don't know if the officer who killed George Floyd is racist. But in 2008, I do know that they chased after someone during a domestic abuse call this is a person who was running away from them was not fighting back did not shoot at them ran after them this person ran into a bathroom locked that bathroom door they busted into that bathroom to get them apparently there was a melee and during that melee the officer shot the person twice in the stomach i don't know if that's a sign of aggression but that sounds like a pretty violent act to me This happened in 2008. It does not surprise me that that same officer has had other complaints about abuses of power. And apparently that officer was an off-duty cop who worked at a nightclub for a number of years. That nightclub had a number of Latin people who attended it, but it also had black people. The owner of that nightclub came up later on saying that whenever that officer and other officers who were there saw that same black clientele come in in comparison to, say, the Latin community that came there, they got skittish. Anything that happened, they would pepper spray them. Any little thing that happened, they would also call for backup. This happened over the course of 2000 till the nightclub closed. Apparently, he worked as the off-duty cop there for at least a decade. That's 10 years. I don't know if that officer was racist, but they did things that racists would do, ignoring pleas for help, using more violence that may be necessary, escalating instead of de-escalating. I can't determine if they are racist. But their actions seem like a pattern of racist, or what racists would do if they were in that position, so I'm comfortable thinking that they could have been racist, and that could have been reasons why when George Floyd asked for help, they didn't render aid, they didn't do anything different. That could be reasons that they didn't just assume that maybe the person calling the cops on them for a fake $20 bill might have just been someone who was a pattern of, say, people like the Karens who had been calling cops on black people and publicized for doing so for very few actual reasons. If someone told me that the U.S. is not institutionally racist, I would disagree just based on, not necessarily history, that would be a more empirical way, but I'm going to say history-wise. The KKK still exists today. While some of their motives and some of their ideas have changed in how they act on them, those KKK members didn't stop having children. Their grandfathers obviously had children. And the ways that they thought and acted didn't change. Now, their overt crimes of hanging, lynching, and burning may have changed... But the ideas that led to them, that motivated them, that were the backbone for them, have not. Have not changed in any shape or form. Simply how they are written or how they are publicly written. When slavery was outlawed, those slaves were kept for a number of days. Simply because they did not want to tell them that they were free. And because of the amount of time it took for the message to get out. When Jim Crow laws were finally removed, officially, The people who supported them, who voted for them, didn't just disappear. There was a reason that people bring up Martin Luther King, but part of that reason is that even though he was peaceful, he was still hosed, dogs were still sent after him, he was still jailed. As far as we know, racists did not stop having children and their ideas did not stop getting passed down. And as long as that is true, as long as that is true or cannot be disproven, then it must stand that there are people who are racist, who are in office, who do have positions of power. The KKK still exists today. They, like every American, have the right to run for office. They have the right to get voted. They have the right to get who they want elected. They have the right to get people in office who support some of their views subtly. They could have someone, pay for someone to go to law school, pay for someone to lobby. They could pay for as many people as they want to lobby and eventually get to positions of power that they want. This is not new. This isn't something unheard of. At certain points, black people have done the same exact pattern. When we wanted laws changed, we lobbied in multiple states and areas to get as many people as we could in those positions. And eventually, with enough people in those positions, we changed laws. Eventually. I find, that, I find that intellectually dishonest to say that institutionally the U.S. is not racist because the U.S. has had a longer history of being racist than it has not being racist. And if that is true, if I can look and say, well, here were 100 to 500 years in which it was racist, and you're telling me it's not racist because 80 years, because 90 years, that can't be true. That's not how that works. You can still find evidence of officers saying the n-word. You can still find people who were in office saying racist things. They get in trouble for it. They get in trouble for it because saying racist things publicly gets them called out for it. But that doesn't mean that they don't say it privately, that they don't act on it in the laws they support. Stop and Frisk itself was eventually taken down as a way that officers should go about trying to solve or handle crimes. Because it was disproportionately used against black people and eventually it was found that that itself while not racist was not fair and could have been racially motivated i disagree with david webb's assertion that white privilege does not exist i think white privilege exists because laws that are made that are meant to target certain crimes are then enforced unequally when stop and frisk was made it was made to find drugs in communities that ultimately were black and brown and were not as enforced as heavily. This is despite the fact that people know that there are white people who do drugs. People do drugs across every social class, across every group, and yet the groups that were most likely to be targeted, that were most likely to be stop and frisk, and that there are more statistics saying that these were areas that were patrolled for stop and frisk laws, were black and brown. White privilege is allowing someone to not have to be stopped for those laws, to not have areas as heavily policed. When we look at, say, areas that have traffic stops, for speeding, we could look at, say, where do police most likely patrol? What do they assume an area has the most crime? Yes, they could say empirically, well, we've done the most stops here, and we've gotten the most calls here, but ultimately, having your neighborhood be in a place that is less likely to be patrolled is also white privilege. And having laws that exist to enforce for everyone, not as forced as heavily on you, for no other reason than they haven't enforced them before, is itself white privilege. Having a position that allows you to argue in certain places, as long as you're willing to make those arguments, let's say like a talking head or a talking figure, is an expression of white privilege. And David himself benefits from white privilege. He does not inherently have white privilege. No one seeing him will think, ah, He is white privileged, he will be racially profiled, he could be stopped and frisked if he wasn't wearing the right clothes, if he wasn't doing the right things. But him being invited to Fox to speak on the issues he speaks on, to make the arguments he makes, is entirely because his platform is built on defending and protecting white privilege and the things it disagrees with or asserts. Because of that, I think it's a little funny to have him argue that. It's similar to cigarette companies arguing that their cigarettes don't cause cancer and all the different studies they paid for and funded, despite the fact that later on it was proven that that was not true. I always look at the reasons why those arguments were made in the same way I look at David Webb arguing for white right privilege. Obviously, he'll make those arguments because his platform and his money and the fame and the books he could write and the podcasts he can get people to listen to is based on that.
0: Protests, there are violent protests, there are really looters, rioters, people the burning protests. down Mostly buildings I and think, within the black community. Do, do you I agree, agree with that? Or there, there, is there anything within the protests, peaceful protests that are, that are going itself, on that you agree with, with, that Colin you disagree that. with? That
1: didn't actually affect change by itself. Um, it was silence, the reasons for that protest were changed to the point of some people have entirely different reasons that they think Colin Kaepernick was protesting in the first place looting by itself is just a crime as well as arson by itself is a crime but all combined together it serves as a practical and I would say even a pragmatic purpose of affecting change if a business refuses to change its policy burn it down
0: really interesting very interesting that, that's good I, I definitely that's definitely different than what a lot of people are going to be saying on this so that's good I want to keep this going so I mean that's yes it would but if they're if they're um, doing that I think though, that by itself is also good wouldn't that just black end up people, proving especially black their black points of to view that people have and stereotypes or our
1: abilities or To make profiles or closing view points, or to show what our skills are we often come into those in situations prove them wrong We end up getting promotions for new positions of leadership, and that allows us to break ceilings and barriers, allowing for more black people to come in behind us. In this case, if the stereotype is, well, black people are violent, you shouldn't trust them, we should be well armed, I'm going to be honest, we've never actually tried leaning into that. Yes, our ancestors have. There have been slave rebellions before, but not within our lifetime. The last major rebellion was really, I'm going to say, the peaceful protest. At the time of Martin Luther King, peaceful protests were a crime. Gatherings of black people and refusing to disperse when white people tell you to leave, sitting in the restaurants, those were crimes often punishable by mob violence and death.
0: Very well said. So, I guess so that is indeed a good way to acquit to, to looting and, and rioting and burning of buildings and everything else. Me, myself, I, I just know myself as a person. I wouldn't be able to do it. I'm just not that kind of person. And I think there's a quote that I have that I've said in another segment that just relates perfectly here once again is that the tree of liberty must be replenished with the blood of tyrants and patriots alike. It's Almost like this is a necessary evil then, with everything that's going on. Which I will say is something that I, I truly just despise and hate is that some people are bandwagoning off of this. Yeah, if you're if you're looting, you're a criminal. If, if you're burning down these these buildings that have nothing to, to do with it, that's that's horrible. That's that's a criminal act. And I, but I just it, it's still, that helps so put I, it into some perspective for me. But at the same time, I'm just like, I don't, not I, don't, I don't know. Is black and white it's just this kind there. of it's it's territory
1: for me. I don't, Nothing ever is.
0: You know, right I guess now, not everything is. Used. Let's say
1: if this was just black okay. and white. No, people please go ahead. Crimes would be crimes <laughs> and people doing things the right way through the right systems can affect change. But we've seen that systemic racism, as well as the issues with police brutality, they are systems. And those systems have refused to be changed. They have defenses for change. Let's say we look at if a protester dies peacefully, they end up becoming a martyr, and then they are added to that system and used to protect it. Anytime someone tries any other form of protest, they're then brought up as an example. Martin Luther King, after he died, was used and has been used as an example across the country to convince people to not use any other form of protest. Even if their protest wasn't necessarily violent, people will immediately discourage it because if it gets in the way of businesses, if it inconveniences people, nope, do it the way Martin Luther King did it. I would say I would lean more towards so Martin Luther
0: in that. In would you but
1: part of that is because lean not just because would you equate yourself more towards leaning in the ways he of Martin Luther say, King and or, or Malcolm when X? He said, Leave or dissemble or don't come here as a large group of black people. I think it was the fact that he was willing to be that Christian who, even though he knew what his beliefs were, he used those beliefs to say. Well, we are peacefully gathering. We're Christians. We're good people while also still marching on Washington, D.C. Any other large gathering like that would have been shot immediately, would have been considered a rebellion, an attack. Very true. Very
0: true. I don't think it's any terms than that. I would say and there are people with all that said, I, racism, you're, you would all, could you, all, would you also say that you do very, believe very in systemic racism? That's, that that's very real. If you don't and if so, racism, what would you say to people out there that, that system, don't believe in systemic racism? You blinded
1: racism? yourself to those changes. If you benefit from that system, any change in that system will make your life worse. And if it makes your life worse, you didn't have the chance to prepare, and there's no way you could have prepared because you didn't believe it was real.
0: Hmm. Very, very, very real, and I would agree on that note too. I believe systemic racism uh, is is very real, and there's a video that I thought laid it out just very well for me. Um. In fact, nope. I I think I'll go ahead and try to find it here so I can I can play it for everybody.
1: Um give me one moment
0: well I have it but I'm not able to it adequately at the moment so I will have to wait and insert it later but there is a video and it's about William Jamal and essentially it talks about how these two friends live together very close in district and as such they actually end up you you see the, the the economic shift between how taxes are paid and how much really funnels in and how much trickles into the actual neighborhood, and the roads, and the school systems. It's, it's a very it's very fascinating. I'll probably include a link in there below. Uh, if I could have found a way to play it on speaker, I certainly would, but I cannot. Now, Blackout Tuesday happened a while back. I, it's not old news, but I know it was a little bit ago. But I, I want to bring it up because I believe it's very relevant, and it, it relates to everything that we've been talking about. Now... Black Lives Matter. Actually, let's wrap of that. What, what is what is a Black Lives Matter movement to you, Lawrence? I know you've already... Actually, don't answer that. Don't answer that. Because that's in the other... Um, that's in one of the voice moves that you had sent me. But it it relates to it. And, and Black Lives Matter was done. There was hashtag Black Lives Matter, hashtag Blackout Tuesday. But I think some things were misconstrued. And people even missed some of the point behind both of those things. And so I, I want to talk about that for a minute because I, I really want to get that out there. Because Black Lives, or Blackout Tuesday, I should say, that entire event, the entire motivation behind it, it was, it was made so that it wasn't just made to simply post a black picture and, and leave social media for the day. It was more than that. it was It's not promoting yourself for 24 hours. And instead amplify the voices and projects of black creators writers directors activists etc and then to, to pass it on and to continue to self educate but then there were also some people who went on in all lives matters post now yes all lives do matter but I feel like they're they're missing the crucial point of the entire concept so For people out there who believe in a long system uh, of all lives matter, as opposed and again, aren't necessarily just believing in Black Lives Matter. The only way they could get something done was if they asked me
1: nicely, but I've never responded to them doing so before. That's a pattern, that's a system. For someone to say all lives matter to someone saying Black Lives Matter, that's it's almost as if you're trying to say what a person said before was wrong. They said it incorrectly. Mm. And for the people who do subscribe to All Lives Matter, I would also say, yes, all lives do matter, but...
0: But yes, that was the video and uh real quick, also, like Laura, so Laura i was to actually able so to, so to get the video audio included So I'm going to go ahead and do that real quick
2: for the systemic racism video. This is Jamal. Jamal is a boy who lives in a poor neighborhood. He has a friend named Kevin who lives in a wealthy neighborhood. All of Jamal's neighbors are African-American and all of Kevin's neighbors are white. Because Jamal's school district is mostly funded by property taxes, his school is not very well funded. His classrooms are overcrowded, his teachers are underpaid, and he doesn't have access to high-quality tutors or extracurricular activities. Kevin's school district is also funded by property taxes so his school is very well funded his classrooms are never crowded his teachers are very well paid and he has access to high quality tutors and lots of extracurricular activities kevin and jamal live only a few streets away from each other so how come they're growing up in such different worlds with such different opportunities for success the answer has to do with america's history of systemic racism to understand it better let's look at what life was like for kevin and jamal's grandparents Decades after the Civil War, many government agencies started to draw maps dividing cities into sections that were either desirable or undesirable for investment. This practice was called redlining, and it usually blocked off entire black neighborhoods from access to private and public investment. Banks and insurance companies used these maps for decades to deny black people loans and other services based purely on race. Historically speaking, owning a home and getting a college education is the easiest way for an American family to build wealth. But when Jamal's grandparents wanted to buy a house, the banks refused because they lived in a neighborhood that was redlined. So Jamal's grandparents were not able to buy a home, and because colleges could prevent them from attending through legal segregation, their options for higher education were really scarce. Kevin's grandparents, on the other hand, got a low-interest loan to buy their first house and got accepted into a handful of top universities, which traditionally only accepted white students. This opened up a wealth of opportunities that they were able to pass on to their kids and grandkids. Even as late as the 1980s, an investigation into the Atlanta real estate market showed that banks were more willing to lend to low-income white families um, than to middle- or upper-income African-American families. As a result, today, for every $100 of wealth held by a white family, black families have (laughs) $5.04. A 2017 study confirms that redlining is still affecting home values in major cities like Chicago today. This explains how Kevin and Jamal inherited vastly different circumstances. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. A big big part of systemic racism is is implicit bias. These are prejudices in society that people are not aware that they have. Let's go back to Kevin and Jamal. Against all odds, Jamal manages to be the only student from his high school to get accepted into a great university, the same one that Kevin and his high school friends are attending. But after Kevin and Jamal both graduate, Jamal notices that his resume isn't drawing as much interest as Kevin's, even though they graduated from the same program with the exact same GPA. Unfortunately for Jamal, studies show that resumes with white sounding names get twice as many callbacks as identical resumes with black sound. Names. Implicit bias is one of the reasons why the black perfect. unemployment rate is twice the rate molded. of white unemployment, Previously, even among college graduates up, today. You can see evidence of systemic racism in every area of life. The disparities in family wealth, incarceration rates, political representation and education are all examples of systemic racism. Unfortunately, the biggest challenge with systemic racism is that there is no single person or entity responsible for it, which makes it very hard to solve. So what can you do? The first thing you can do is work towards becoming more aware of your own implicit biases. What are some prejudices that you might hold that you're not aware of? Second let's acknowledge that the consequences of slavery and Jim Crow laws are still affecting access to opportunity today. As a result, we should support systemic changes that create more equal opportunities for everyone. Increasing public school funding and making it independent from property taxes would be a great start so that poor and wealthy districts can receive equal access to resources. Systemic problems require systemic solutions. And Luckily, this all we're great. all part I mean, of the I system, don't which means that we all have think a that role I've to play in making it better. But for the most better. part, it's all been—it's
0: been—I feel like it's been very accurate, and a lot of this is just real. It, it's very real, and it's still, it's not, it still—it baffles me that how some people are disregarding racism in its entirety. How no, it still exists—I don't. It's still not fully clicking for that. Now, a lot of people have, you know, what happened with George Floyd was it didn't need to happen. It was ridiculous. It was it was a overkill, quite literally, and yes, a tragedy. Now, a lot of people are saying it's our it's our system's fault that it was a faulty system within that state with, with the training of the police officers, with background checks that ultimately led to his death, yet some people are making this about race, and some people are asking for proof where it's about race, so do you believe, now for me personally, I I don't know if there's enough out there for me to really think about race, I believe that race is involved, I think that it definitely brought awareness to systemic racism as a whole, and I, I believe it's very real, and Without a doubt, I think it's a mixture of both. I don't just think it's one thing or the other. But what would you say about the death of George Floyd and everything going on? Was this a race issue? Was this a a system issue on the police side of not having good, adequate training or ethical training or or background checks and evaluations, et cetera, cetera, and enforcement on the the recommendations that should be taken on police officers via complaints and more? what is how do you what are
1: your thoughts on that so it it would be easy for me to say both but instead i'm going to say this was very much a this was a race issue this was a race issue um when people try to say Fair something enough. isn't racist they always they always base it off of their definition of
0: racism ah. most
1: people assume racism is you hate a particular race but Racism has never required hate to be a thing. If I put a sign saying this color group of people can use just this water fountain, that water fountain doesn't hate me. That sign doesn't hate me. But it's still racism. If I forbid you from being able to work here because of your race, that doesn't mean I hate you. I don't have to hate you. It Literally, is just actions or inactions I take based on your race. When George Floyd was begging for help, That officer could have disbelieved that he actually needed help, and that disbelief could have came from the idea that he might have had a bias that simply assumed that black people lie. He could have assumed that, well, black people don't feel as much pain as they actually feel. He could assume that when he was crying out, he wasn't actually in pain, he was just trying to draw attention to himself. Any number of biases ultimately led to his death, and any number of those biases could be based entirely on his race.
0: And once again, well said. I <laughs> I wish I I sound like a, dry, a broken record on repeat just saying that, but it's so true. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. But but I have shared my views here and there in between the things of the podcast, and I was more interactive with Chris. But like a lot of this is just me trying to gauge everyone that I'm bringing in. So I the way that you that you're thinking about it, that's very logical. And I think a lot of people forget that racism can take different manifestations. It's not the same as it once was. It's not going to be blatantly, you know, saying the N word or calling someone out for this or that. It's gonna. It's, 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 a lot of it takes more subtle forms, but it's still there. And I think I think something very interesting that a lot of people forget is that this is a generational thing. This is something that happened, what, one, two generations ago, this is I mean, it's been an issue for a lot longer, but I mean, even like you said previously the KKK is still a thing that that, that means something and you know, actually tying into that, and in, you know we you and I watched Avengers Endgame, so you know about Lexi, the, the little girl who played Morgan in Avengers Endgame, right? Mm-hmm. So her mother actually ends up, because that little, that little girl is so sweet, breaks my heart she ended up wanting to go to a protest because she saw what was happening. And yeah, that little girl acknowledges that all lives matter, but she also acknowledged that there was a major issue with a particular group of them. So she was going to a protest. They traveled all the way to to Minneapolis to go to one of those protests, right? And literally, her mom posted on the Instagram story that they were going to leave now I was I was like okay well you know daughter's safety that you know that matters you know and she was talking about how her first responsibility is you know as a mother as a parent as a four year old girl that you're bringing to that that's gonna be a great experience but that's that's still a lot and she literally just panned the camera and she was like yeah um just you know know to be safe know to be peaceful but the KKK are walking up in here and so now it's time to leave and there was literally an entire group of KKK members some dressed up. like the the old kkk people some just waving signs but you could tell and there there was just a mob of kkk members going to break up the protesters and i thought that was very that it, it just baffled me that was even still a thing so
1: and i like that you bring that up In some of my studies on trying to understand systemic racism one of the things that always occurred to me was Even though owning of slaves was made illegal, slave masters didn't just all die. Even though the Civil Rights Act was passed after Dr. King's death, that didn't suddenly mean that people stopped being racist. That didn't make all their children... If you were an adult who was a racist during Dr. King's time, and you had children, you didn't suddenly stop teaching them what you believed. And those children didn't suddenly reject or forget what you taught them.
0: Very In the true. same
1: way that my parents and my parents' parents probably tried to warn us about how to deal with racist issues, how to deal with the systems we might encounter. Their parents might have taught them how to reinforce or how to make sure that system benefits them. In
0: what what age, Lawrence, do you feel like your parents had to start educating you about this stuff?
1: Oh, man, that is a tough one
0: it is uh while you're thinking about
1: when thinking about the age that you should teach your children how to deal with racism how to deal with police i think it should start as at least as early as five but instead of just going straight into this is racism or this is how police will treat you simply starting with basic responses that you should use so yes basic ones like yes sir no sir uh don't make any movements with your hands sit still yes those are things that are done because we fear for our lives but i think saying those things early on just as uh, the same way we teach children how to deal with um fire stop drop and roll or dial 911 teaching it as if it's just a basic thing you do can at least alleviate having to also talk to them immediately about racism immediately eventually you will have to bring up the reasons that they had to do those actions but i think at least laying down the building blocks for habits and choices and how to move just to survive and to stay alive that's important and that should start as early as five or at least the earliest age that you would teach a child to stop dropping roll. damn that's
0: pretty powerful Lawrence. and i don't know man it's Really, I mean, as we're gonna begin to bring this to a close unless there's anything in particular that you want to continue to go on about or ask me. I mean, in regards to that, I mean, I was sheltered until I until I met you and everyone else at A and I didn't realize just how sheltered I was. And it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, that's where I'm drawing the conclusion because my friend and I have such opposing viewpoints on this yet we grew up the same. Granted, I, I believe he does have white privilege, and he comes from a very, I don't want to say wealthy family, but I mean, they live in St. James, and they have a pretty nice house, and so, but I was raised around majority of white people, I'm adopted, I was raised by white parents, and through all of that, you know, they taught me not to see color, and I still don't, but now... Like, it, it wasn't until my, my freshman year of college that I really started to notice some of the struggles that the black community goes through and how it's not as simple as it may seem to get out of poverty or out of a certain life cycle or life situation. Yes, you can definitely be self-made. You can definitely do whatever you set your mind out to do and succeed. But there are certain stepping stones that I, I definitely had an advantage with. And I acknowledge that. I mean, I went to... Uh, Christian private private school, followed then by a charter school, only to then, you know, briefly go to a normal middle school. But even after that, I went straight into early college, and all of that has its perks and benefits. So, and on top of that, I was in this small town of Southport, that's a tourist town. People here are really friendly to begin with already, and there isn't really any racism here. I've seen it here, they're like really, really old folk. But aside from that, I mean, everybody loves me. I like the talk of the town and all my friends and I, like we have names for ourselves. It's just, it's very interesting how it differs from a district to another or from state to state or even just from town to town. I feel like I've been isolated. you have you've been isolated. From the, I don't know your life experience per se, but it's just, it's very fascinating to me.
2: So-
1: It's funny that you say that. So I would say for the first, I'm going to say five to seven years, I was also sheltered. I first went to a Christian pre-K up to early elementary, but then my parents worried that I wouldn't be able to adjust to a world that wasn't normal or wasn't sheltered. So they did eventually put me into a regular elementary school. Um, But even then, that was still sheltered because it was primarily white, primarily Hispanic or white passing people. And because of that it also meant I wasn't as connected to black people I then gotten put into a middle school that was closer to my mom's job and had more black people but it still wasn't that many it was mostly um, people who were immigrants and I grew up in Texas but the neighborhood I was in was primarily people would have just immigrated there and were just setting up their lives they were either first-gen or second-gen who didn't go to college And these were people who, they looked black, but they spoke a second language. So they weren't the same type of, they weren't black American. Their experiences were outside of the country. Um, It wasn't until I had a choice for high school that I actually went to a predominantly black high school for the first two years. I chose that school because, and it was a historically black high school. um, Booker T. Washington High School, high school for engineering professions. It was closed for a few years and I think it's reopened, but it's not the same. Um, and I chose that school because I wanted to know what the struggles of my people were. I wanted to know what my people were at all. Were the stereotypes true? Were they everything I saw in music and movies, or were they different? Um, And I was able to draw my own conclusions. I was able to have my own experiences and find where I fit in, if I fit in at all. Um, The second two years, I did go to a charter school, so that way I could get into the college I wanted to. I discovered uh, What is it? What is it? I discovered out-of-state tuition and I had no idea how I was going to pay for it But I realized if I changed schools and I'm in the same state as that school long enough to be considered An in-state student. I could, you know, knock off some fees and get some scholarships But I valued those first two years And it very much made me comfortable when I actually became an Aggie um, When I came to North Carolina, I had had my experiences with black communities. I had my opinions I knew where I fit in. Um, I knew where I wanted to fit in and I knew how I could fit in. Well. But i also admit, if I hadn't searched for that, I wouldn't know what to do. I honestly wouldn't.
0: And I I agree right there with you, man. Like, if I didn't go to a and T, I I might have some different views on all of this than I have now. A&T wasn't just a culture of shock, it was an experience. And everything you said is very similar to some things I went through as well, but I also wanted to know. I mean, hell, like, <laughs> this is going to sound so weird, but, like, I love to dance, and I'm, I'm a quirky dancer, but, I mean, hell, going to a historically black HBCU, I, I fit right in there. I mean, it's an entirely different way of life almost and in certain aspects i mean you start dancing in the middle of the fucking street or at the plaza at a and t next thing you know you've got 20 people there with you playing different kinds of music and you almost have a mini rave going on like it's it's very it's just it's, it's different but it's different in a good way and i i definitely know there's some people there that i just will never be able to understand or just never fit in with but you know you and Chris and everyone else are people I fit in with so I think it's kind of worked itself out and that's part of why my not all, not all of the reason but part of the reason why my mentors and family also wanted me to go there because they knew that I would need that experience but not everyone's exposed to that not everyone gets that, gets that experience so I can only do so much Um yeah. Other than that, I'm gonna have a lot of other different I'm gonna have some similar topics, but also a lot of different topics. I know with Ricky I'm gonna be going over statistics of how police are trained. Uh with Brandon it's gonna be debate back and forth over everything that was said. And with Catherine it's just gonna be a talk about how her living in the city experiencing the protests have been. So it's all going to be very, very fascinating. For some other people, I'm probably just going to be showing videos and including audio and then having them react to it. So, with that said, is there, is there anything else that you'd like to Sarah put out there before we end it?
1: The um, only thing I would say is that it's important to have these kind of conversations. I only reached the points in growth that I had because people allowed me to have these conversations, even when I had absolutely nothing to say, they gave me the chance just to listen and i'm I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I automatically knew everything to do um I'm going to say I reached my I reached the point of knowledge I have and the ability to articulate it because sometimes I was given the chance to be wrong, people gave me a chance to correct myself or learn, or they showed me where they learned and gave me the chance to do my own research. And I think having these conversations, or at least knowing that these conversations exist, is important. What you're doing is important.
0: Well, oh, thank you, and I appreciate that. And I hope everybody takes that to heart. Um, but yeah, no intro music, no outro music, just us chatting for now. Um, no Marvel news or anything like that. Uh, thank you. If you've made it this far, if you're still listening with us, thank you, thank you, thank you once again for sticking with us through this journey. I can't wait to continue to share all of the other podcasts and other segments and other interviews that I will be doing, that I'll be conducting. I have two of my mentors coming in uh, to be on this. One's an electric engineer at Duke Energy, while the other is a retired biostatician with a PhD in that area. (laughs) <laughs> uh, he's going to be assisting me with statistics and giving his views and experiences as well as my other mentor, Gabe. Uh, I have some really good friends coming on. I know Ka, one of them is coming down from Jacksonville. Long drive, just so she can be a part of this, and I appreciate it. All of you, you know, much love. Spread the love. Share the education. Be the education in some cases. But most importantly stay safe and look out for one another this year has been crazy and 2020 is definitely going to be a time to be remembered we've been hit with one thing after the other australian wildfires covid now this it's murder hornets. it's it's crazy It it is a crazy time but it also makes for stories and experiences and bonds so this is Tom Foolery with T and K. This is Lawrence. This is Thomas signing off. Good night. Or. Good afternoon.